Okay, good morning. Um, I hope everyone is doing well. Welcome to the Saturday Breakfast Show with me, Atlanta Plowden. Uh, nice to be speaking again this weekend. Um, apologies um, for my slight delay here speaking, just getting my thoughts together. Another usual kind of Saturday morning. Um, but it's really good to be talking to you all again. Um, today we have a really interesting guest coming on a bit later. Uh, it's Katie Crabtree. She um, is American. So big standout feature there for Katie on a British kind of radio podcast. Um, and it's super important um, what we're going to be talking about, because we're going to be talking about the differences between what it's like to apply for teacher education over in the States and teacher education over here in the UK. So the differences, um, how you kind of, you know, navigate that, um, but also kind of general differences between both education systems. Um, also today, we're going to be talking a little bit more about differences in safeguarding. We spoke about it on my first show a couple of weeks ago, um, but over the last couple of weeks, I've had a few more conversations about it. I've thought about it a little bit more and I'm, I've been thinking, OK, I think this is something I'd like to just start a discussion around again. It's about safeguarding, how seriously we're taking it in schools and what we can be doing in the future to kind of train people in safeguarding and actually make them want to stay in that role, maybe as a designated, a designated safeguarding lead and kind of differences you may have found between contexts. So I think that's super important. Uh, this morning, so I am based in London. I'm in a very, very quiet bit of London. I'm in Enfield. It is pretty nice outside, nice and cool. And um, going into school is now feeling a bit more like a, a joy. I'm waking up, the fresh air in my face, walking to the bus. It's actually quite a nice kind of, it's almost nostalgic getting into school. It's nice and cold. You almost feel like one of the kids huddled up in your coat. And um, yeah. The weather's actually really, really nice at the moment. And it's only actually going to get better, really, I feel, going to school, especially in a school that is not particularly designed to in, to be well uh, kind of insulated or, uh, what's the word? <sighs> you know what I mean. If you're a teacher and you're going to school, the summer months are generally quite terrible. So it's nice to have the kind of cooler weather settling in and making us feel a lot better at school. Okay, so in the next 20 minutes or so, Katie will be joining us talking about the US. But the first thing I'd like to do is I'd like to pose a question. If anyone here has actually listening, has worked in the US or has had family or friends teaching over in the US, get in touch. Um, I've come across a few students before I've taught that they have um, perhaps grown up in America. Um, they've managed to come to this country and their standard of education I've actually found is a lot better than ours when it's actually being applied in work. Okay. So what have you, um, found if anything, or would you consider going to work in the USA or any other country for that matter? Okay. So it'd be super, super interesting to hear what you, um, are thinking around that. Uh, and we'll be talking to Katie in about 20 minutes or so. So any um, kind of relation you have with the USA in teaching, please let me know. Have you taught any kids that have had an American education? Um, I'll give you one example, a specific example. Um, I recently, um, last couple of years, taught a child 
he had come over from the USA and I found whilst teaching, I'm an English teacher, by the way, whilst teaching him, I was looking for his book and I thought, wow, his grammar is so good. And it got me thinking, well, what are they teaching over there that we're missing out? We have got a renewed focus on grammar, but what are they doing that makes this kid come into school, into secondary school and actually be able to apply it really, really well and easily? Okay, almost seamless, seamlessly. The British kids struggle much more with grammar. I know I wasn't taught grammar at school. Uh, none of my friends were necessarily taught grammar at school unless they went to public boarding schools, for example, where the curriculum's a little bit more kind of classical in the way that um, they approach things. But I am, you know, really impressed. Again, looking at this kid's work and thinking I can tell whilst he was over in the States that his standard of education was very different in terms of what they actually focus on, the details, the grammar, etc. And I've, I was impressed. But that being said, maybe Katie will kind of shed some light on it later. Maybe it is not what I think it is. Maybe it isn't at all. Um, so I'm going to start off now by reading out the news for uh this weekend obviously um yesterday was quite um another big day in british politics um following the murder of the mp over in essex um how does this affect public figures by extension how will it affect kind of the children we're teaching, how they're going to decide what kind of public service jobs they're going to go into in the future. Obviously, this affects schools in different contexts. School and currently teaching, and this will be a conversation. Previous school, it won't be. So how is this going to affect how we encourage our kind of next generation to actually step into public um, service roles as public servants? Um, and that's something that we should be thinking about. Okay, so I'm going to give the news right now. So this is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is the news for the weekend. In technology news, the government continues to work to connect a further 884 schools to superfast broadband by the end of March. Schools in rural areas uh, across the UK now have access to a gigabyte capable full fibre broadband, according to a government announcement. Uh, the county seeing the highest number of upgrades includes Norfolk and Wolver uh, Wolverhampton as a city, North Yorkshire and the Scottish Highlands. The work was carried out as part of a five uh, billion pound project, Gigabit, which is a continuation of the local full fibre network scheme that began in 2019. The local full fibre network scheme initially aimed to connect uh, 100 primary schools and communities, which would not have been included in commercial rollouts of faster broadband. Nadine Doris, the UK Digital Secretary, said the government was levelling up pupils and teachers access to the fastest future-proof broadband. The government has invested £30 million in the Connect the Classroom scheme, which further aims to improve education by bringing high-speed Wi-Fi and cloud services to over a 1,000 schools. The I newspaper is reporting that most schools in England have now been targeted by anti-vaccination campaigners, with some staff threatened with physical harm and protesters even invading school sites in some areas. Um, the Association of School and College Leaders has also shown that 9 out of 10 schools have experienced disruption to teaching and learning as a result of coronavirus absences. The survey took responses from over 550 heads and principals of schools and colleges, with 79% saying they have received emails from anti-vax campaigners threatening legal action. 13% reported seeing protesters outside of their school premises, whilst 18 schools reported that protesters had gained access. 
Jeff Barton, the General Secretary, described that the protesters' activities are at best unhelpful and at worst very distressing. Mr Barton also highlighted his frustrations. The vaccination programme is apparently beset with delays and is running behind schedule, meaning that 42% of heads feel their schools will not receive vaccinations before the target date of next Friday's October half term. BI is also reporting on comments made by the Minister of State for School Standards, Robin Walker, which gave the strongest indication yet that the current pay freeze on teachers' salaries may be lifted. The pay freeze came into effect in September after Councillor Rishi Sunak imposed a pause on public sector uh, pay rises last November. And in July, the Department of Education Independ- Independent Peer Review Body formally uh, won uh, ministers that extending the freeze into 2022 to 23 financial year would have a severe impact on the profession, jeopardising efforts to attract and even retain high quality graduates. Mr Walker responding to a question from the eye as to whether he felt the profession deserved a pay rise. He responded that he would like to see things moving forward in that respect. Mr Walker also said that he wanted to see a uh, a fair increase by pushing from the bottom with the government's manifesto commitment to increasing starting salaries to £30,000. He did, however, acknowledge that any increase would have to balance with school budgets, which raised the prospect that schools may not get new funding to cover any increase. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News. Okay, so again, really super interesting things going on in the news at the moment, particularly around anti-vax. And as I was saying, in regards to kind of the discussions I actually want to have regarding safeguarding later on in this show, um, how does that work with anti-vax protesters? Surely, surely... um, being able to access uh, the premises of schools is a breach of safeguarding code. So again, if you are one of these heads or uh, trust principals that have responded to the survey I just mentioned, please, again, think about uh, getting in touch. Has your school had an extreme uh, experience with anti-vax protesters um, or not at all? Have you not come across any of them at all? Um, what do you feel you can do in terms of um, regulating this and what kind of safeguarding measures are you putting in place to make sure that this um, that these actions are not taking place, um, will not take place again? Okay, so again, an interesting intersection there between safeguarding and then the kind of the right to protest, but where do you have that right to protest, especially in relation to schools and schools that obviously contain, at times, thousands of minors. So that would be a really, really interesting conversation to have as well. Um, so again, we're going to have Katie on with us in about 10 minutes time. Um any questions, please put them forward. Again, if you've worked in a different country teaching or if you are planning on going to another country to teach one day, please get in touch. I think it's super important that we keep having this kind of international perspective. As I said, I've taught um, children that have been educated in America and other countries and they are coming to the uh, to my classroom with lots and lots of different skill sets and kind of knowledge and ideas about what English is as a subject and also other subjects that um, actually give me a better perspective of what I'm teaching and what I should be teaching. 
So again, if you're listening and you've had that experience abroad or would like that experience abroad, that'd be super important to actually discuss that here and also discuss with Katie when she comes on in a few minutes time. I think um, something I would like to explore is, you know, the idea of going out to America to teach. Um, It seems quite difficult to do. I know that lots of different states have different kind of rules and regulations as to whether you need a master's degree or um, what kind of age group perhaps you're allowed to teach. But from my understanding, obviously, it's it's quite hard to emigrate anyway to the US, but actually to stay as a teacher sounds actually quite difficult and not necessarily well paid, I've heard as well. Um, again, if you've had experience with this, please let me know call in, uh, send me a message. It'll be really interesting to find out these things um, a bit more. Um, So before Katie comes on, I'm just going to do a bit of an introduction. So, um, and I'm sure she'll introduce herself as well. Um, But Katie, I've known for uh, a few years. We've known each other from the um, UCL Institute of Education. We're both completing master's degrees there. And... um, Katie herself, she's not a secondary or primary teacher. However, she has experience with kind of applications to different um, teaching schemes in both uh, the UK and the US, um, and also kind of engages a lot more of the kind of higher education. So I don't know how many people actually listen on here from higher or further education. But uh, again, I'm it's not necessarily something as a secondary teacher I ever really think about unless it's in relation to year 13s applying for university. And even then I don't have much experience. It's usually just talking to my colleagues or talking to six formers about uh, the things they have to do. But very rarely is there actually a kind of helpful overlap between the two. So it'd be really interesting actually in a minute to talk to Katie about her experiences being more kind of associated with higher education. Um, and her kind of perspective on teacher education in both countries um, and also other experiences relating to secondary slash high school education. Um, Again, uh, please put your questions forward. Any anyone who works in higher education, I think it's super important we actually talk to them and think about how we can um, bridge the transition between secondary such further into higher education as teachers, because actually I think it's something we do neglect slightly um, because, and it's not about keeping up strong relationships when they leave, not necessarily, but it's about making sure we build up strong relationships with the actual universities. Um, And how does that actually change? And what kind of universities are we encouraging our kids to go to? Obviously, people say, well, Oxbridge, so Oxford and Cambridge, the Russell Group universities, but how is that actually playing out in schools and who are those opportunities given to in the classroom and for other things such as high um, gifted and talented provision? What are we actually encouraging these students to do? So that would be a really interesting conversation to have in a minute. Um one more reflection for the week before we um, invite our guest. I think um, this week has been super interesting in terms of it's a couple of weeks before half term starts. Lots of people I know in schools are stressed. They're uh, struggling. Behaviour is starting to go downhill a little bit. Um, I've certainly found in my classes that behaviour is becoming <laughs> tiresome. 
So let's uh, have, again, a little think about how actually you can, again, bridge that gap between um, just before the holidays and the holidays themselves. How does behaviour go downhill? And does it matter what kind of school you're working in? As far as I can tell, both schools I've worked in, trained in, uh, continue to train in, it behavior actually does go downhill very quickly in both despite the very different context at this point in the year so that would be super interesting to kind of think about well what how do you make that better what do behavior teams do to kind of mitigate that that kind of tiredness and that descent into tiredness especially when staff are so tired and stressed at this point of the year uh, good morning also to Nickname, who's written in with literally just good morning. And Tom, Roger's history. Yes, I think it's probably going down in all schools. Yes, no, I agree. Absolutely. And I think it's really important, this behaviour thing, is you could assume a school with very, very good behaviour naturally, and obviously it's not natural because you have to work on the culture of creating good behaviour in a school. But um, kind of going into that and assuming what, well, try not to assume that the behavior is always going to be good and it does go up and down because that is normal human behavior i suppose um but definitely very very similar to my last school very very different context um i think the biggest difference though with behavior in these two contexts at this point in the year just before half term is uh between rudeness and just disruption in the classroom um my current school it's a bit more about a little bit of arrogance um and it's not necessarily misplaced arrogance um uh i think these kids i think kids on the whole should be you know celebrating kind of what they know and actually should be challenging teachers however it does cross that fine line at this point into the year where actually just it turns into rudeness previous school it wasn't about arrogance it was just about quite high level extreme disruption um, so again, really interesting thing I've noticed is, uh, the kind of, yeah, they are, it is going down in all schools, but we shouldn't be assuming that it necessarily looks the same in all schools and how do different behavior teams deal with it? It's quite an interesting one to think about. Okay. So Katie, if you are, um, listening in, please, would you call in? Excellent. Hi. Hi, Hi Katie. Katie. Okay, you can hear me. Yes, I can. Can you hear the... Oh, that's absolutely fine. Excellent. How are you doing, Katie? I'm I'm good. How are you this morning? I'm I'm great. Thank you. Um, I've given you a slight introduction. Yeah. If, uh, I've said how we know each other, but if you could, you know, introduce yourself, tell me what kind of background you're coming from in terms of education, um, and also, you know, just a little bit about what you've been doing recently. Mm. Yeah, so um, I uh, just finished my PhD in philosophy of education, like literally last week. It's Dr. Crabtree now. Did you just see? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I just got my doctorate in the philosophy of education. We met at UCL when I was doing my master's in the philosophy of education. And before that, I was at Oxford doing a master's in higher education studies. And before that, I did my undergraduate back in the States in psychology, French, and public administration. So I'm kind of a latecomer to education and a bit odd in that I predominantly do philosophy of education, more theoretical stuff. 
And um, yeah, so I'm just transitioning to the real world now. Amazing. Um, <laughs> would you actually consider, and this is something we're going to talk about in a minute, but would you consider um, possibly going down the route of being a secondary teacher, even the USA or the UK? Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about. Um, and I've looked into some uh, alternative routes into teaching, both in the US and the UK. Um, unfortunately, uh, the sort of largest program in the UK, Teach First, um, I wouldn't actually qualify for. Uh, so I'm not really sure if if teaching in the UK would be an option for me. Actually, that's really interesting because here, yeah. Teach First, um, there's been a big debate about it recently, on yeah. Twitter, for example, about, and lots of people believe it's quite elitist mm-hmm. and that it just kind of folders people into the DfE to be policy advisors, etc. Yeah. after a few years. Um, but then some people are very much like, this is the future of education, this is the future of teacher training. Why don't you, as someone with a PhD, and they very much encourage very well-educated people to come into the profession. So explain why, as someone that's a PhD from this country, mm-hmm. um, can't access Teach First? Um, so I do not qualify academically because I did my high school, my secondary school in America. And also, I don't know if you know this about me, but I did the first half of my high school in South Korea at mm-hmm. international school. Okay. And um, so in the US, we have what we call AP courses that you can do in high school. They are not mandatory to graduate. Um, they're essentially um college level or like university level classes that you can do in high school and you can get college credit for those. So once you get to university, um, you won't have to take those classes because of course we have um, a more generalized curriculum in our universities. And because I spent the first two years of my schooling in international school in South Korea, I came back to my high school in my hometown in the US. I couldn't take any AP courses. So um, I didn't have any. And the, so this is a problem when you like sort of scale out in the international education and mm-hmm. you sort of look at equivalences and reciprocity of degree recognition is um, I think some things get lost in translation. So because I didn't have any AB courses to teach first, it looked like I didn't go to high school, right. <laughs> which isn't the case. So, um, yeah, so I, I couldn't join into the curriculum because of that. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And it's one to think about, again, because as I said, uh, uh, Teach First here, it's very much clear that if you have a 2-1 or above, ideally a first class degree from yeah. um, a Russell Group or 1994 University, um, you will have the opportunity to go through Teach First. Yeah. Um, so it's super interesting again that they haven't kind of bridged that gap. I've been speaking about bridging <laughs> gaps today a lot. Yeah. How they haven't bridged that gap between your situation and actually Teach First, who are trying to keep teachers in the profession as well. Um, yeah. So, kind of moving on slightly. So, obviously, you said that you um, went to high school for a while in South Korea. Yeah. What would you say is kind of the key feature of an American education? Because for me, when I think about British education, I immediately think of um, 
two things. I think of group work and I think of behaviour. I feel like a lot <laughs> of my education was about um, doing lots and lots of group work and also being in classes with very, very disruptive behaviour. And I was one of those kids as well. So yes. what about you? What about the American kind of ideal of education there? Do you know what? Um, and, and I firstly want to say that. So I went to a quite rural school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, not that rural, uh, kind of a suburban school that is that looks a lot like the high schools that you'll see in American movies. And we actually had a foreign exchange student from Germany. I remember her name was Mimi and she came and we asked her like, oh, what do you think of America? And she was like, it is exactly like the movies. Um, So I think, um, and, but I recognize that sort of my, my school is not representative of all schools in the U.S. There's so many different types of schools and different types of places. And I think I got really lucky with my school. Um, it was, it was a good school, but it didn't push students like too hard. Um, because now I think that there's so much pressure with all the AP courses and getting into colleges and stuff. Um, but it was a lot like what you would just see in an American movie, like high school flick sort of a thing. And um, But to me, when I think of like the real difference between U.S. education and U.K. education, uh, to be honest, I'm always kind of flummoxed at how um, – in secondary, your secondary education, you get sort of um, locked into certain subject areas. Yeah. In the U.S., there's way more flexibility. So so tell tell us a little bit more about that, because again, here, lots of student choice doesn't really come in until maybe year nine, you get to choose a couple of GCSEs and then choose A-levels. So how does it work for you? Um, So again, like AP courses are going to uh, they do, they do change it a bit, but, um, in, so most people you get to high school and that's where you, so that's grades nine through 12 in our system. And you can start to pick electives. You can start to focus on things, but American education has always been a really generalized curriculum. Um, so you still have to take math for the duration of your high school. And the age of 18, 19. Yeah. So, okay, wow. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and you have to take it in university too. Yeah. Um, if, if you haven't taken the AP course. So the reason that people take AP courses is because also when you get to university, you have to take generalized classes from no matter what you decide to specialize in, you'll still have to take classes from the gen ed curriculum and that will include like even if you're an English major you'll still have to take a math class or a chemistry class and so a lot of times people take AP classes so they kind of get those out of the way by the time they get to university so um for me I think that's the biggest biggest difference and to be honest like I think it's great that we that it affords students some flexibility later into their schooling where they can you know, decide, well, actually I want to do English and science. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas here, I feel like you don't really have, you can't really go back so yeah. much, you no, know? I, I don't think you can. I think there's a lot of, 
people that kind of they go through the system they do whatever a levels they choose at 18 and then they kind of have a big oh no i wish i did maths at a level for example and they have to kind of if they wanted to do that they would probably have to go through some kind of process where they would genuinely have to do that a level separately as a private candidate i think um Mm. and i think i think you're right i do think there is quite uh there's a pressure for specialization quite young Mm-hmm. Um, but how how would you think about even changing that though? Because obviously, I think there's a big issue in schools where lots and lots of kids feel like they just can't do maths. Yeah. Um, maybe that was set in at year eight. I don't know what grade that is in US, but that may set in in year eight, and it will ultimately mean that when it gets to A level, they just won't go, they won't touch maths or a science subject. So, mm-hmm. kind of, how is that treated in the US? Is it kind of like an understanding that you will do maths and therefore you will revise and get better at it? Or, um, Yeah, I guess best case scenario. I mean, I was definitely one of those people who was really convinced I couldn't do math. But then when I look back on it, I could mm-hmm. do math <laughs> yeah. pretty well. And, yeah. and it was sort of um, uh, even 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 though I had to do math, like I, I – could have pushed myself to do more advanced classes than than I was doing um, because I was fine at math actually, and that is a real problem where people just get convinced that they can't do math. Um, but yeah, I guess like the <laughs> the mentality is well, tough cookies. You got to do math. Like you're just always going to yeah. have to do it until you get to your first year of university. So I haven't done math since then but I did do statistics because I was a psychology major um and I did fine in statistics in university and um yeah so I wonder if you know just kind of requiring people to continue with it and to continue with science um can help people overcome that sort of hurdle of of believing that they can't do it yeah I think um I don't know. There's a lot of conversations around this. And I think, again, my colleagues who teach maths, uh, I think they definitely struggle with getting people to actually stay on and actually believe that they can, Mm -hmm. I suppose, have a growth mindset around it. That's a bit of a buzzword in itself. But there is a massive struggle with that, especially actually with um, lots of girls as well. That's a big, big conversation. Um, To go back to our conversation about teach first, what is the equivalent in America? I suppose the equivalent program would be Teach for America. So um, how, how does that work? What's what's the key kind of thing from that? Uh, so it it actually there's really similar conversations in the U.S. about Teach First. Um, so they do prefer to recruit quite. Um, from quite elite institutions in the U.S. and often it is seen as not a long term route into teaching as people will sort of do it short term and then go on to do policy or or other things. Um, So really similar conversations with uh, Teach for America. And um, it is also conceived as um, maybe not even like the best way to train teachers because they really do just throw you into a classroom with very little education support. Um, for your subject. So um, there's lots of critical conversations. Um, 
about whether or not it is serving the students that those student that those um, new teachers get placed with, if it is a sustainable model for getting people into teaching. Um, mm-hmm. But that's only one. So that's the that's sort of the biggest program in the U.S. Um, but there's each state has different alternative routes into teaching, um, where it's sort of on the individual who's interested in joining teaching um, to follow those routes themselves. Uh, and eat, you know, we've got 50 states; they're all different. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and each each state will have their own criteria, and so like, and they can really vary. So Vermont, Vermont is really interesting. So Vermont has a portfolio um, application, so you can. Um, sort of put together a portfolio and it will be reviewed by other teachers in the state and they will either grant you like um, the the sort of right to teach or not based on your portfolio. So it can be quite individual or, you know, other other states have programs. Like I think New Mexico has programs um, within their schools. So it can really vary, but Teach for America is probably the biggest equivalent to teach first but then there's so many other ways to get into it so is teacher america is that across all states or it is nationwide but they do have targeted areas and so um they target areas that are traditionally underserved and underfunded schools i mean really in the u.s like when we talk about that there's been a push to sort of change the dialogue of you know of what formerly used to be like called a failing school to just a school that is under supported and underfunded. Um, so they sort of target schools that traditionally are not as supported and they can be in urban and rural areas and um, in, in specific States. So we're looking like in the South and um, in different urban centers across right. the, the nation. So um, do you feel that it is actually, or would you say from your kind of understanding of it, it is actually working into getting people into those underserved areas? Because with Teach First, there's kind of this feeling that it it does work, um, Mm. getting teachers into the underserved areas, but it only kind of works for a short amount of time because then they go. Because the school I trained in was very much a Teach First school. um, Mm. And the senior team all very very young mid-20s um you had teachers coming in for teach first and then they kind of were saying mm, I might go after the second year um yeah. but it was very much teach first school and whilst it was working and it is it's getting a lot better that school I'm not sure how long it will last so what do you feel do you feel that will happen how do you feel it's playing out in terms of teach for America I think I think it's quite similar is is people only do their two year commitment and then they tend to leave whether they go to like a different school district or go on to do other sort of uh, nonprofit work. Mm-hmm. Um, I have looked at um, so Chicago schools has their own sort of program where they support you um, to work in their school district and they expect you to to stay there for five years. And I'm I wonder if these more sort of localized um, programs are better in terms of uh, retaining teachers in those districts. If you have a bit more support for the schools that you're training in, um, you might get people to stay a bit longer. But thus far, there is the perception that Teach for America recruits tend to only stay for their two-year commitment and they don't 
stay much longer and whether or not that's a sustainable model for um, serving these schools that are traditionally underserved. That's, you know, it's interesting. I just, I don't think um, people really know about Teach for America. It'd be interesting if actually uh, other European countries, for example, have this kind of system that we just don't know about. Um, Mm. And actually, I'm sure Australia has something like this. Um, and yeah. how it's actually changing the face of education quite quickly, but in a very kind of short cycle way, where mm. you're just turning out these teachers. Um, so what about higher education? So could you tell us a little bit about what your PhD was on? Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, Have a go. <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell, I should be able to describe it at this point. Um so my sort of research focus is on higher education and uh, specifically like a liberal arts education um, idea, which you tend to get in university education. Um, but it's quite theoretical and it's quite, I guess, detached from, from actual uh, systems. But I'm interested in sort of, um, I don't even know if reclaiming is the right word, uh, about revitalizing ideas of liberal education, liberal arts education without, because um, we mostly talk about university education in terms of, well, is it going to get you a job? And trying to defend or to talk about liberal arts education without those terms. In a nutshell, that's the that's what I've been doing for the past five years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you do you feel that? Um it's ch- it's changed in those past five years at all or do you think it's got better or worse um <laughs> probably worse i guess yeah um in terms of uh the focus and what people expect out of university and how we discuss it is is still uh very much in in sort of a cost benefit analysis um yeah and sort of the deeper sort of ideas and traditions behind education sort of go out the window. Um, Yeah, I think if anything, it's gotten a bit worse, especially with the COVID pandemic and the dip in the economy. Um, uh, Do you think there's any kind of way of changing it from the kind of, from high school slash secondary school time, where actually you're teaching these kids about, what they're expecting at university and what they should actually expect after university because I often find as a teacher I always say you could go to university if you want to but the conversation then kind of stops there I feel like my responsibility almost drops after talking about university because it's just not a conversation we have beyond usually with the kids we might say oh you could be a top engineer or a doctor or a teacher whatever you want to be Mm. but we don't tend to go into those kind of conversations. We just say, go to this university. Yeah. Um, so do you think there could be a change in improving kind of universities and their outlooks um, by starting with how we talk to kids in schools? Or do you think that actually, no, that's not how it how it could work at all? Uh, yeah. So I guess like university in the real world is always kind of used as the stick in education. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> like if students are not motivated to do something, you know, teachers will always give the threat like well when when you're in the real world and you're working a job or when you're at university you're gonna have to do x so you should do this now Mm -hmm. and I just don't think that this is working and it's not really tenable because essentially now all you need is a degree for lots of jobs but it's it is completely displaced from the content of what you've 
done, right? Like you just need to have a degree for lots of jobs. It's listed like have a bachelor's degree, especially in the US or have a master's degree, but it doesn't matter what it's in. And I just, I wonder like why, why have that requirement for a degree if it doesn't matter what you studied or what you learned? Right. So I feel like something's a bit displaced and I genuinely, I don't think that this is going to be working. And especially when we see huge shifts in, popul- in the age of population. So most countries and in, in Europe and the U S are going to have um, older populations. So there will be fewer young people in their populations. Most populations will be uh, predominantly older. Mm-hmm. And so I think, how we expect education and university and work to be lined up is going to change. And I mean, in my ideal world, sort of the things that you study, like the liberal arts, the more, um, I guess, academic things should be divorced from vocationalism. And I think right. that we need yeah. both. Like, you, like, I think so far we've just had this uh, divide of you either do something that's very vocational or you do something that's very academic and I, why not have both? Why, why can't we sort of be a bit more flexible and, and shift in between them? And, um, cause I really don't think university education sets you up for most professions unless, mm-hmm. you know, except for the, the traditional university professions, which are law and medicine yeah, and yeah. like to an extent engineering, you know, because they have always had long education systems to get into those professions. But I think, you know, broadly, the sort of transferable skills idea of of degrees uh, doesn't really set people up well for the world of work. And I think it's strange that we would expect it to. So why not sort of divide a person's education, divide your education to uh, here's what I'm doing vocationally and here's what I'm doing more academically. And you can sit with both. You could do both if that makes sense. But that's, that's my dream world. <laughs> it does make sense. It's interesting because the, uh, the kind of the news I read out earlier, uh, the, the kind of the government's trying basically really to get rid of BTECs. Uh, are you aware of BTECs or what they are? Uh, give me a refresher, a BTEC. So they're kind of the kind of, more kind of vocational practical kind of qualifications you'll get at a GCSE level or A level standard. So they're a lot more, they're kind of, they're, they're, they're a joke to a lot of people. And then to mm-hmm. other people, they're a genuine kind of lifeline for future yeah. work opportunities. Um, and I've had friends actually, the school I went to as a child, it was interesting because um, if, so I have one friend, and she was doing uh, science, GCSE. And I think it was a few weeks in, the teacher pulled her out and said, you're moving science classes. And she was just like, okay, whatever, in a very teenage way. Uh, she arrives at a new science class, does the work, et cetera, et cetera. About half a year down the line, she's told, oh, you're not in a GCSE class. You, you know you're doing BTEC. And she was like, oh. Anyway, Again, very teenager, just being like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, and then it wasn't until she got her GCSEs, got her A-levels, was looking at universities, and she was like, well, wh- why has this happened? And it was interesting because it was treated by the school, this kind of vocational BTEC kind of idea, as a way of 
just basically getting kids they didn't think would be able to do the science GCSE to, I don't know, a, a good enough standard in their heads. It was just to get them through quicker, but yeah. to the to their detriment, to the child's detriment. And it's happened as well with other subjects in the school. And also uh, at A-level, I remember they offered the opportunity really to do music B-Tech or music A-level. But again, there was kind of similar kind of, oh, no, you should do the B-Tech. So it actually causes a lot of distrust, I think, in the school system when schools mm. can kind of manipulate it in that way. Yeah. Um, so how would you, what does that make you kind of think in terms of how schools actually use them? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's just yeah. terrible. It's like, it is. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think in the U S too, that, that does happen, but like, so I think that the broad level of conversation about more vocational, uh, gosh. Okay. So I think that like, completely taking that option off the table doesn't make any sense uh -huh. but equally it doesn't make any sense to track kids into something that they might not want to be doing or is going to close off other options for them at the age of like what 15 uh -huh. um and and i think that we need to take a serious look about the future of employment right um because the truth is is like uh th there will still be uh, jobs that need vocational training that we need people to do. And I think that we need to take away like this notion of elitism around um, these tracks and to, to, to work these system, like the roots into different types of work and to be really like, take us a really serious look at the kind of jobs that we're going to be needing. So we're going to need a lot more people in care um, because yeah, yeah. we'll have aging populations and we need to have good training for people in care so that we can take care of folks. Um, but also I don't think that being in care should, um, should divorce you from opportunities to do further education, like further university learning. Um, if anything, I think that we need more flexibility um, between two different routes. So uh, because people are not staying in professions very long anymore they're, they're changing so I think that we need more flexibility we need more, more roots into into um, professions and like why not study the classics alongside of that I guess that's my my dream well no I think it's quite a good dream to have and I think it's uh I think uh the last couple of things I actually want to talk to you really about and it's something we have spoken about a lot and it's something teachers are still speaking about in this country is really actually the notion of knowledge-led curriculum mm. yeah and kind of how does that encompass the more vocational side because there's lots of schools in this country popping up now I'll give one example the East London Science School free school that I've worked at and it's been around for around 10 years now, I suppose um but they make sure that every single child is taught Latin. They make sure every single child, regardless of what set they're in, is taught high level science for mm -hmm. you know at quite a high level. But then on the side, they do offer some vocational subjects. However, they are not a hundred percent certain or have been that they're kind of doing the right thing by offering those, because they say we're a knowledge led school. This is about knowledge. It's not about skills. Um, you know, what's your take on the kind of knowledge-led 
idea what does it mean to you because again to thousands of teachers across this country it is a big political debate could you uh in what way <laughs> so it's a big political debate because in this country we've had this issue between skills and knowledge and it kind of rotates itself every mm. 20 years or so um and the whole call right now is scrap you know vocational things scrap we need knowledge 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 we need to be kept up with the likes of singapore and china we need um you know subjects should start with content skills should come from uh, the content rather than content comes from skills um so kind of what do you think about that in terms of how your own ideas about education mixing the vocational mm -hmm. the the academic what would you say knowledge-led ethos looks like for you Mm. Uh, so I guess I, I guess I have more sort of qualms with like the notion of like like a body of knowledge um, mm. but that's more of an esoteric debate um, but I, I guess I mean I am sympathetic to the to this because educational talk has been so um, focused on skills like critical thinking skills etc but the thing is is like you need to think about something right <laughs> like it doesn't there i think the knowledge and skill bit um are not so divorced from one another if that makes sense like they're quite yeah. in tandem and to me it doesn't make sense to to separate the two completely and i guess it's it quote, kind of goes back to sort of my dream of well you could have vocational but you could also have like high level academic work you know, alongside yeah, yeah. one another. Like you could train to be a plumber and you could also read Plato. Um, yeah. And and I, I just think that, like it just doesn't make sense to de uh, deplete anybody of opportunities for vocational training or, you know, sort of knowledge disciplines. And, um, and I think that we need to think really seriously because what we do now in education does stick with somebody for a lifetime and more options are always better than fewer if that makes That's sense yes. so yeah and I, I just I guess I sit somewhere on the middle of that scale of knowledge versus skill because I think both are important both like they feed one another right I, I totally <laughs> agree and I, I was having this conversation actually at work with my training mentor um and I've come into a school where the kind of idea is that English as a subject is very kind of skills-based. Um, mm. My head of department very much has this idea that there's no such thing as content in English. Um, and for me, I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm trying to think about what I think about this. Do I agree? Do I disagree? Um, I've been trained in literally what's been packaged as a knowledge-led ideal training where it's direct instruction i teach content we analyze quotes we answer kind of questions on those quotes and we look at the very content of it and i'm coming into a school which is kind of a little bit more mixed and yeah. it's all about kind of creativity skills kind of like how can we kind of bring this alive a, a bit more and i don't know i think there is a there needs to be a meeting of both but i suppose well it is it is an esoteric like it is a debate that is very difficult to actually understand mm. unless you've been properly studying it I think that's that's part of the issue and I'm sitting there my new school thinking okay 
Um, I know quite a bit about this knowledge load idea. I know quite a bit about the kind of skills idea in education theoretically, but when it comes to actually on the ground teaching, it's a completely different idea. Mm. Um, and actually I think about, well, how can we merge the two? But is it possible? Because again, it's still quite a political debate for teachers. For some people, it, can, it represents actual education secretaries, secretaries and their actual idea of education. And for other people, it just represents pedagogy and yeah. teaching. Um, so it, yeah, it's super, super difficult, but I think your idea is pretty, I, it's pretty, it's fine. It's good. It's normal. <laughs> uh, and I think it's, uh, but you know, again, you're coming from a different perspective. I think if you were a British kind of teacher, it would then be interesting to see what you thought then. And it would be interesting actually, if any British teachers want to call in and have that discussion. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. But again, most people haven't actually been trained in the understanding of knowledge, which I think really changes it. Mm. Mm. I guess, I mean, there's always difficult, I think, well, we think that when we have these more philosophical debates about what knowledge is, et cetera, how, how it works, um, we think that it's all quite neat and then it gets into the classroom and everything gets messy. And I think that that's maybe the wrong way of looking at it. And mm -hmm. it starts messy and it continues to be messy and that's fine. <laughs> like, no, it's, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. it is messy. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that part of the problem is our expectation in, cause we're, we're trying to design these huge education systems that stick with people for a lifetime um, is that actually um, everything is messy and in flux always. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> we need to like live through that and um you you know there's no point in having knowledge if if you have no skill there's no point in having skills if if it's devoid of content they're married always and yeah. that's okay that's yeah that's fine and um yeah but but when we expect like a neat system of marks and grades and different levels and outcomes that's where we have a problem no absolutely and i think uh we can always strive for that neatness but it's about the kind of that's more of the admin side for me mm -hmm. i think we have to accept yes again like knowledge is not a kind of neat sweet little package that you could just give it is something yeah. it's about the relationships with context and the outside world and that changes and relationships yeah. between our ideas of ourselves and what knowledge is I it is it's absolutely messy and I think that's like the perfect quote to give in regards to kind of knowledge-led ethos to kind of give to teachers and be like don't expect it to be easy or neat yeah it's well I think education at its best is um not it is dis discomforting right yeah <laughs> in, in being live in a classroom with other people other other thinking breathing beings, right, who have all this agency and, and power and watching how they take it is is the beauty of it, right? Is that's that's where education happens. And I think that we're we just always want ad administratable outcomes. And that that's impossible to do with um with how knowledge works and, and how we do things as humans and how we use our skills or why we even want a skill in the first place um no absolutely yeah. um yeah no it's a really interesting discussion and again it's something that in this country for the past decade or so 
has been really, really key to kind of new curriculum reforms and kind of how we understand it. But again, knowledge has become a buzzword. Mm. Um, and I've had these conversations with you and many other people before. It has become a buzzword. And just like skills is a buzzword. And my understanding is that skill, skills is suddenly becoming a new buzzword that's coming into play again. So the mm. next 20 years of education will be very interesting because I imagine what I've been trained in will be out of favour by the time I'm a, I'm a kind of well-seasoned teacher. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's hard if, like, these are questions. But I think, you know, so if I learned anything from doing a PhD, so I kind of looked at the history of the ideas of liberal education. And the thing is, is um, that pendulum, pendulum has always been swinging. Like, no one has ever agreed. There's never, never been one stable idea or notion of what education is for, what we should be doing. Um, it's always been in flux. And I think the key is to like, keep going through the flux, right? Because I think that we always want to make make a new idea, make a new set, make a new organizing structure um, that's going to be revamped, that will become obsolete, you know, soon and will need to be revamped. So I think that part of the, the art of, of education is living through that flux in and understanding that um, how things change and how things also don't change over periods of time. Because this is stuff that we've been talking about for centuries, <laughs> what we should do it with is. young people, <laughs> you know? No, it is, and it always will be. Yeah. Uh, I think those who survive it best are the ones who understand that it is, it is that pendulum. Yeah, yeah. It's very representative of that. Uh, well, anyway, I'll let you go now. Thank you so much for being on today, Casey. Thank you. Thank you yeah, for having me. Hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been fun to talk uh, education on a Saturday breakfast. So. <laughs> That's, it's true. Uh, yeah. But thank you so much. Um, I'm going to go to the adverts now. Um, okay. Yeah. Bye. Cheers. See you later. Excellent. Well, um, if, again, you there's something very particular in that conversation that you've heard, be it about knowledge-led ethos, higher education, maybe you're a six-one teacher that's thinking about how you kind of bridge that transition to university and not in terms of pastoral the pastoral sense but actually about how you encourage your students to keep the knowledge that you've taught them and to actually apply it in their degrees that would be a really again really interesting conversation to have i'm going to cut to the adverts um so uh ah, okay i'm going to read them out okay so one of the spots of Sponsors of this show is Oxford University Press. If you need support with your phonics teaching, Oxford University Press now has free DFE validated programs to help you. Read, write, ink, phonics, floppies, phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. It's developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub. It's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. To find out more about these programmes and receive support from your OUP expert local educational consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. One of our show's sponsors is the History Hotline podcast. The History Hotline is the hottest line for all things black history and beyond, a space to have honest and honest conversations about black history and how it impacts the world we live in. The History Hotline podcast explores some of the facets of black history ignored by the mainstream, your teachers and textbooks. Check out the podcast by following the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. 
Again, one of the sponsors of this show is Mal CPD. Now, if you struggle with people pleasing and find it a constant battle to manage different and difficult personalities, then why not challenge and empower your team for the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course? Alternatively, gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader for the assertive leadership and emotionally intelligent leadership leader course. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Excellent. Okay. So again, any conversation that you wish to have based on today's guest, Katie Crabtree, please call in, have a conversation with me. Um, Write in as well. I think there's a lot to take from that in terms of how we look at the debate between knowledge and skills. I'm just going to plug in my earphones one second. let's make sure this is done excellent sorry apologies for that so again if there is something you would like to talk about I think a really interesting thing for me again and I've had a background in academia uh, looking at knowledge their curriculum um, but I left it to go into teaching I think what's been super important for me over the past few years is actually talking to other teachers about well what does knowledge mean um why do you think it means this or that? And I think I never get a very good understanding or conversation about it because actually I don't feel schools on the whole, senior leadership teams are having conversations about curriculum that they can ultimately translate to the wider staff body because I don't think it's necessarily very accessible. So again, knowledge from many equals direct instruction um and for others it equals a kind of political debate that's for many not one want that people want to have um recently on twitter someone said to me that when i mentioned knowledge i was just talking about government driven jargon uh and i thought well that's interesting because i don't think of it like that i think of it as a living breathing kind of academic concept that i'm trying to get to grips with and i don't see it as politically attached in the way that many other people do so again how can we actually think about that and merge the idea of the vocation and the academic together and think well how are we doing this what's the best thing to do for the children in front of us it's always an interesting discussion okay so um after the news what i'm going to do i'm going to go back into talking about safeguarding some reflections from this week from thinking about it also the the current news about um anti-vax uh protesters managing to get onto the premises of schools um and why that actually presents quite a dangerous risk in many cases now that's not that's not my a comment on uh, the idea of not having the vaccine but it is a comment on adults who are coming into schools to protest when again it's in many cases um a building full of children okay so what kind what are heads doing to mitigate this what are the safeguarding risks again if you are a head teacher or even just a classroom teacher that's experienced these issues that uh, have been happening this week please get in touch i'm just hoping my microphone is working excellent good okay so again we're going to go back to the news so today's uh weekend news is as so let me just get it up Okay, so this is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. 
In technology news, the government continues to work to connect a further 884 schools to superfast broadband by the end of March 2022. Schools in rural areas across the UK now have access to a gigabyte capable full fibre broadband, according to a government announcement. Counties seeing the highest number of upgrades include North Norfolk, Wolverhampton City, North Yorkshire and Scottish, the Scottish Highlands. The work was carried out as part of a five billion pound project gigabit gigabit which is a continuation of the local full fiber network scheme that began back in 2019 the local full fiber network scheme initially aimed to connect uh primary schools and communities which would not have had been included in commercial ro- rollouts of faster broadband nadine dory's uk digital secretary said the government was leveling up pupils and teachers access to the fastest future proof broadband the government has invested £30 million in the Connect the Classroom scheme, which further aims to improve education by bringing high-speed Wi-Fi and cloud services to over a 1,000 schools. And the new iNewspaper is reporting that most schools in England have now been targeted by anti-vaccination campaigners, with some staff threatened with physical harm and protesters even invading school sites in some areas. The Association of School and College Leaders have also shown that 9 out of 10 schools have experienced disruption to teaching and learning as a result of the coronavirus absences, and a survey took responses from over 550 heads and principals of schools and colleges, with 79% saying they had received emails from anti-vax campaigners threatening legal action. 13% reported seeing protesters outside of their school premises, whilst 18 schools reported that protesters had gained access. Jeff Barton, the General Secretary, described the protesters' activities as, at best, unhelpful and, at worst, very distressing. And he also highlighted his frustrations. The vaccine programme is apparently beset with delays and is running behind schedule, meaning that around 42% of heads feel their schools will not receive vaccinations before the target date of next Friday's October half-term. The I is also reporting comments made by the Minister of State for School Standards, Robin Walker, which gave the strongest indication yet that the current pay freeze on teacher salaries may be lifted. The pay freeze came into effect in September after Chancellor, uh, Chancellor Rishi Sunak imposed a pause on... Public sector uh, pay last November. The pay freeze came into effect in September after. Uh, sorry, I've just reread that one by accident. In July, the Department of Education Independent Peer Review Body, formerly one, uh, Mr. Stat, extending the freeze into the 2022 to 23 financial year would have a severe impact on the profession, jeopardizing efforts to attract and even retain high quality graduates. Mr Walker was responding to a question from the I as to whether he felt the profession deserved a pay rise. He responded saying that he would like to see things moving forward in that respect and that he also wanted to see a fair increase by pushing from the bottom with the government's manifesto commitment to increasing starting salaries to £30,000. And finally... He did, um, however, acknowledge that any increase oh, would have to balance with school There we budget, go. Sorry, apologies for that. The that schools may not oh. get new funding to cover any increase. Apologies for that. That's my um, reading from the transcript, um, changing accidentally into the audio there. Uh, back to Mr Walker. He did acknowledge that any increase would have to balance with school budgets, which raised the prospect that schools may not get new funding to cover any increase. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio news. Excellent. Okay. Um, So, again, um, 
lots and lots of things that have been discussed today. We've spoken about US education, British education. We've spoken about kind of differences in higher education, which is always something that I feel I never really get to discuss or think about as a secondary teacher, especially one who has not yet taught uh, sixth formers. Uh, year 13s in particular so that would be super super interesting actually to really think about and consider over the next year actually considering the impact of the pandemic um so now i want to talk about safeguarding again now the reason i come back to safeguarding actually quite often is it's one it's on my interests uh it's something i'd like to move into uh once i've completed my training fully um, but also, again, I'm finding week on week it becoming more interesting in the new context I'm in and how it differs from my previous context. And this week, hearing the news that anti-vax campaigners are actually gaining access in some cases to the, the school sites in order to protest, I find actually um, quite disturbing, quite shocking. And it's, again, not necessarily related to the content of their protests, but actually the very fact that they've decided to target schools and coming into schools which is actually on the whole it's a danger okay so um has that happened at your school it's from as far as i know it has not happened at our school there's been no protests outside if a child's family decided they're not going to get the vaccine it's just been fine it's been a no sorry move on okay so i do find it disturbing from a safeguarding perspective that adults are gaining access to school sites and that this could be uh, an actual problem moving forward um what are we doing as adults to kind of mitigate this and to kind of think well yes we've got this issue this is a political issue the vaccine it's very much so um we've got people outside our school gates how are we stopping this from happening and how have they gained access to these school sites why has the government not stepped in why has the dfe not acknowledged it so um maybe they have but we just don't know the kind of you know details of it but why hasn't it been acknowledged publicly and very kind of clearly that this is a safeguarding risk it's similar with you know other protest groups such as insulate britain now obviously that's not a safeguarding risk in terms of schools but it is a risk to safety and danger of people on the roads. So why are we not treating it with the same kind of despair and upset that these guys are causing? Okay, for me, again, if it's a safeguarding risk, we should be working immediately to mitigate it, to stop it, to make sure that um, the threat is kind of minimised very, very quickly. And again, it makes you wonder where is the support for heads and um, other kind of senior teachers who are having to experience this kind of issue okay so that's really really important actually to think about and it's kind of worrying again that that's happening that genuinely did shock me when I was thinking about when I was reading the news that has happened over the past week especially the threats I think the other thing today about safeguarding that I want to talk about is actually um how do we know what makes disclosure especially if you're a trainee, if you're an NQT, ECT, training teacher on schools direct, PGC, whatever you're doing, how do you know what constitutes disclosure? Now, during my training year, it was very, very clear that a disclosure would not uh, necessarily happen from a child. It would be something you've spotted or something you're concerned about and that you're immediately to report that 
on the appropriate channels such as CPOMs or Safeguard, etc., etc. At my current school, it's slightly more blurred. Um, I'm not entirely sure always. I mean, the training's been very good. It's been very thorough. But as uh, for my own personal perspective, I'm not entirely sure what I count as a personal kind of disclosure um, how it's being dealt maybe it's because I fit into the culture more of this school than my previous school in terms of the kids backgrounds um, and I'm more used to what they're experiencing or haven't not experiencing um, and at my previous school again the culture was so so different of the kids I was teaching that I when I spotted things I was much more confident in saying that is a safeguarding risk or not so how can we actually train up teachers to make sure that their kind of understanding of a disclosure kind of fits with um, the safeguarding protocol and their understanding of the culture they're teaching? Is it very similar to the culture they grew up in? Is the school very similar to the school they went to as a child? Uh, for sure, mine is. Therefore, again, it makes it difficult for me to understand what I'm seeing. Is it abnormal? Is it normal? Okay. And I'm not just, I'm not talking about very, very obvious abnormal things, but I'm talking about more subtle things that do actually often go under people's radars. Um, because again, those more subtle things at my previous school where the culture is so different to the one I grew up in, um, they were on my radar and they were on the radar quickly. Now, maybe that's saying something about the kind of, maybe that's more of a sociological statement, a psychological statement in terms of culture, but for sure, that is how I see the difference in safeguarding between the two schools. Again, always interested to um, know what you think and what you're feeling. Um, because again, it's something that plays on my mind quite often. I'm always worrying, actually, have I missed that because I'm used to that? Or I saw that as a kid and thought that was fine as a child. Okay. Or uh, am I thinking something is a safeguarding issue when really it really isn't? So again, please. These conversations are super useful to have. Have them with your staff. Have them with your colleagues. See what you're, what's going on. Because, again, it's been a big thing for me to reflect on this week. As things pop up, I start to think, am I really treating this very well? So, again, I'm always there thinking and reflecting. Am I doing the right thing? I hope I am, but I might not be. And that's super important. Um, and another thing about safeguarding is actually, is there a stronger link then we realise with teaching and learning. And what I mean by this is the kind of the, the kind of answers that come out in lessons. Um, how do we contextualise these answers? And what then makes us think, is this a safeguarding risk or not? Um, a really good and interesting conversation I've had about this recently is actually in relation to the prevent um, strategy as set out by the government a few years ago now. And kind of... Um, if a safeguarding issue arises during a lesson through an answer that's been given in a book or verbally, um, uh, there's a school of thought that you should just challenge it there and then, and that that's it. It comes out teaching and learning, and it's very much an academic kind of issue. But there's also another school of thought that's obviously report what you hear. It could be important you don't necessarily need to challenge, you just need to report and get it off your hands quickly because it could lead to something quite difficult. So what is that link between teaching, learning and safeguarding? And my kind of big pondering question uh, that sits in my head quite often is what I'm hearing, is it an academic concept that needs challenging or is it something that immediately needs to go to somebody else? 
And what is that link? How do I make sure that link stays in my head and I am certain that this child is saying something that um, does need reporting or doesn't because it's literally just within the context of the lesson. Um, again, it's a conversation that needs to be had and it ha is a conversation I have had and one of the schools I worked in many, many years ago. Well, no, it wasn't many, many years ago. It was only a few years ago. It feels like it. Um, it was definitely a conversation that was had in the prevent training sessions and it made me feel actually how do you marry all these things in a school how do you merge them together to make sure that actually ultimately your ch the children's safety is kind of prioritized alongside the curriculum and alongside any other pastoral kind of needs in a school um quite broad becomes quite abstract but again super super important how can we break it down and how can we kind of use our senior leaders knowledge and understanding of all these different safeguarding teaching and learning and merging together into like a package that is appropriate education for our children always you know happy to talk about that um and it should be something we should be happy to talk about way more in our staff rooms and in our slt meetings for sure okay so TSCW, I think it needs challenging and logging on central systems like CPOM so it can be mapped. And it may be a one-off when the child's profile is looked at by the DSL, head of years, it can offer a bigger picture. For sure. I think um, I've had comments in lessons before, uh, for example, teaching about World War II. Um, and I've had comments that have been racist um, and anti-Semitic, for example. And I remember I challenged a child and I said, okay, why do you think that? Where do you think that's come from? Can you just give me a bit more of an explanation of your ideas and thoughts behind that? And the child just said very, very bluntly, no, it's what I believe and I, I'm not going to change it. And I remember thinking, okay. And I said to him, okay, um, so you feel like we, we can't discuss this any further? And he was very clear, no. So I reported it, went for all the kind of, you know, safeguarding systems and a conversation I had with a colleague afterwards was, you should have challenged it more in the classroom. And I've, I said to him, no, 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 it was shut down very, very quickly by the child. And I thought it would be inappropriate to kind of challenge more because I felt like it would have exploded more. And actually the best option was to kind of say to the child, okay, I don't feel that's necessarily an appropriate view right now. Um, or what you're saying is interesting, but it's not, uh it's not what we want to accept in our society therefore i do need to have a conversation with other adults about this um but the conversation was very very kind of blunt with that child and they didn't want to talk about it further so actually challenging it and bringing in the kind of stuff we were learning and talking about was very very difficult but on the other hand I've had children making very kind of similar comments and I've said, okay, why, why do you think that? Why, why do you think that's appropriate? Do you see the issue with this or, and they've actually spoken through their thoughts and then kind of reformulated what they're saying. And by the end of the lesson, they will be like, oh, okay. I think about this in a different way now. And I thought, okay, do I still need to safeguard this? Of course I feel like I should. Um, but again, conversations with colleagues have been, well, you've challenged it in the lesson. I think you've done the right thing. We don't need to go any further from there. 
And they're not always in relation to racism. They can be in relation to um, gender identity, sexuality, etc., etc. So again, um, I agree. I think it does need challenging, but I think it always needs logging on central systems because you never know if an extreme view will get even worse. And for me, I think um, there's always a context behind these things, but it's one that we need to actually consider a bit more. Uh, TSTW, I have often had to challenge students on racism and sexism, then make follow-up calls to parents for them to explore things at home with them, but struggle to expand on details further with the parent. I knew such know lots of things have been said by the child and have been stopped in a corridor and have been stopped in a corridor about them, but can't always remember putting a case forward to say there is a big issue with attitude. I think calling and having these conversations with parents is actually quite it's important as well. Um, but I think there's always a big fear of how supportive that parent will be of you or the child and um, the kind of possibility that it may well be coming from the parent for any kind of reason. Um, I think that's important. I had a conversation with a child recently about they were they uh, absolutely refused to have the vaccine. I said, that's absolutely fine. That is you or your choice. And that's one that you've spoken to with your parents. Um, it is more of a kind of, you know, that is on you, but out of interest, why, why? And then the reason they gave was actually one that did need safeguarding. It, it came from um, quite a kind of a, a perspective relating to, actual, to racism actually. And it did need safeguarding and I reported it. I spoke to the parent on the phone uh, and the parent was very, very clear that they are again we're not going to discuss this further and that she supported her child's views and I was like okay but I, I do have to have this conversation I do have to kind of have a conversation about this um so it, it is difficult um and yes details of what was said in a catalogue so they could hopefully have the follow-up conversation and it's absolutely yeah it's absolutely true I think we also need to get better at making notes it's a very simple thing. Sometimes things are said and we're like, oh, that was weird. But we don't really give it much further thought. Or sometimes we say to a colleague, should I safeguard this? And they're like, maybe, but they often don't know themselves. And is that through lack of training? It can be. Or sometimes it is through maybe training that is pretty good, but just kind of a not a huge confidence with kind of the safeguarding side of things anyway. Because I think it is quite a personal and difficult thing to kind of get to grips with because you never quite know if you're doing the entirely right thing, either by the child or by the adult in the situation. Are you giving them more of a workload that's pointless? Or are you just thinking, oh, what that child said is a bit weird, but it's fine. So again, always making notes on what's being said, I think is super important. And notes you can actually also just bin afterwards because um, at the end of the day, what's being said in a lesson or in the corridor may well be leading to something else that we don't know about. Or maybe it is just a one-off comment that's being thought by a thinking teenager who's growing up, seeing what their attitude is in the world, where they fit. Um, and again, I think that's also where we can find that link to the um, teaching and learning side of things. What we're teaching them will make them think, will make them say things. Therefore, let's be kind of prepared uh, to make those calls on safeguarding when we know we're teaching them specific things and actually have those conversations with parents 
about what emerges and making those notes directly in relation to what they've got it from in the lesson. I think it's super important. Again, TSCW, if you think, should I always do, the DSL uh, head of year can decide to take it further or not, but will hopefully appreciate it. Yeah, and that's a big thing. Having those kind of members of staff showing their appreciation for the safeguarding kind of um, disclosures that you make, uh, that children make, sorry, and that you kind of follow up on is super important because that actually gives more staff the confidence to think about it. And again, as I said, there is space, I feel, for any kind of teacher that takes on a teaching and learning role to kind of uh, include safeguarding in their role because ultimately um, lots and lots of safeguarding issues do subtly come out in work and actually in uh, lessons. At least I find that. And maybe what I'm saying is a bit odd, a bit radical in terms of the teaching and learning lead having anything to do with safeguarding in kind of very specific terms. Um, But initial thoughts as a trainee and how over the past week, the things I've kind of experienced with children and other colleagues. TSTW, even if they see something, you correct them and then they get it. Record it as the follow-up action of the correction. And enlightenment is great as we are asked for evidence in safeguarding of this and safeguarding audits. And I sat in an Ofsted where they went through CPONs with me last year, wanting to see follow-up on concerns. Um, yeah, it's always important, those notes. Um, and I think they're doing, you know what, I think Ofsted are doing the exact correct thing. I've worked in a school actually where... Uh, I wasn't a teacher, but um, it was a while ago. All safeguarding concerns were not reported centrally. It was just to one person who had to remember them and he would make the notes. And I used to think, is this really the most appropriate way? Because you're putting all this pressure on one person and it must be pretty difficult to follow that up. And I imagine when officer came to visit them, they were probably a bit concerned because they were probably like, where's the central kind of system? So it is, I imagine, very, very difficult. But thank you for texting TSCW. Um, always appreciate your kind of uh, contributions as well, especially to my kind of rambling thoughts and safeguarding um, <laughs> education in general, but super, super important. Um, before I go, I'm going to do one more reading out of the adverts. And it's been super, super important for um, me to say that I'm really, really grateful for everyone who's listened in, who's listening in on the podcast after the live show. Um and I just want to, again, uh, apologise to kind of any audio issues. I am working on sorting that out for the next show. Hopefully next week we'll have um, an ex-civil servant from the DfE who went into teaching as a guest and actually kind of questioning her on why she decided to do that and kind of what's been an important kind of learning curve for her from moving from the kind of civil service government side of things over into teaching in primary school so that'd be super interesting to uh hear about actually it's always something i think uh about in relation to teaching is if civil service or the dfe were actually doing the teaching what would they go back to the dfe and say what would their kind of response be to some of the crazy and not so crazy things the dfe sometimes comes up with so that'd be super interesting next week to talk about so very quickly, uh, just one more round of the advert. So one of the sponsors of this show today is Oxford University Press. And if you need support with your phonics teaching, Oxford University Press now has three DfE validated programs to help you. Read, write, ink, phonics, floppies, phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well quickly using phonics books you may have already had in the classroom. 
developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub. It's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics for lessons and sounds way more effective. To find out more about these programmes and receive support from your OUP expert local educational consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com phonics. One of our show's sponsors is the History Hotline podcast. The History Hotline is the hottest line for all things Black history and beyond, a space to have honest conversations about Black history and how it impacts the world we live in. The History Hotline podcast explores some of the facets of Black history ignored by the mainstream, your teachers and the textbooks. Check out the podcast by following the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. And again, finally, one of the... the sponsors of the show is Mal CPD. And if you struggle with people pleasing and find it a constant battle to manage different and difficult personalities, then why not challenge and empower your team for the Mal CPD essential coaching skills for school leaders course? And alternatively, gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader for the assertive leadership and emotionally intelligent leader course. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. You can find out more at www malcpd.com so that's www.malcpd.com excellent well thank you for joining me today guys again a huge thank you to katie for calling in that was a super interesting discussion um so next week again hopefully we're going to have an ex-civil servant from the dfe who became a primary school teacher uh, recently during the pandemic uh on so that'll be super interesting and thank you for sticking out with me and my uh lack of audio um i will be switching computers next week so that should be absolutely fine but again thank you guys um have an excellent weekend and have a really good week at school next week if you are teaching if not can't wait to see you again next week have an excellent weekend let's try and play the final all right thank you see you soon